So Claire Giovino is a money manager. And it occurred to me, and of course she knew this already, that there is something very similar about being a therapist and being someone in her position. How money impacts relationships, it reveals all the hidden lines in our lives, our alliances, the difficulties we have with others. Money just seems to bring it all out. And I had to do a podcast with her. Besides talking about relationships, we also, you know, we get down to brass tacks. We talk about restructuring unhealthy thought patterns around money, how to build wealth. We talk about the really strange money taboo. You know how you can't really, you're not really supposed to talk about how much money you make? What's that about? Why is it a big secret? Claire also talks about the financial mistakes people make. And also, you know, it occurred to me that since I've been doing this podcast, I've never really advertised myself. I mean, speaking of money, and I thought I should. Sam Lamont, who's super brilliant, suggested, hey, Ben, I run a podcast. I have a Patreon. You don't. Why don't you advertise your practice? It just never occurred to me. So I have a practice in San Francisco and I have openings. And if you are interested in seeing me as a therapist, you can shoot me an email at benjaminrusick at gmail.com. That's B-N-J-A-M-I-N-R-U-S-S-A-C-K at gmail.com. I specialize in substance abuse, teenagers, folks going through midlife crises. I do couples, I do families, I really do, they're fun. And I can tell you that as a therapist, if you wanna know what's going on with someone's life, ask about the money. It's really incredible. At any rate, my name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast and my private practice. Look, just tell me what to do. And now, Claire Giovino. Yeah, so I'm a financial coach for the past six years. That's my main focus right now. I actually also have a podcast called The Better Questions, which focuses a lot on the psychology around money and creativity. But those are the two things where I spend most of my time these days. So as a therapist, I'm very interested in how money functions in people's lives because in my experience, money problems amplify every other problem. So if somebody is anxious, if they're in a difficult relationship and they've got money problems, they're more anxious and the relationship is more difficult. (laughs) And it becomes a function of love. You know, when someone gets disowned from a family, they get cut out of the will. When somebody dies and the will comes out, suddenly you see all the invisible alliances that were there for years or all the anger and bitterness all suddenly appear magically. The analogy is is, is is like the invisible man in movies when someone throws some sand on him, you can you can see him, right? And money kind of mm-hmm. does that to all the invisible stuff in our lives. You just throw money on it and suddenly, boom, you can see it. Oh my God, that's really clear. So I'm curious to hear from you, what emotional and psychological functions do you think money serves in the lives of your clients? I think that's really profound about the invisible lines. And it's something I'm have been thinking a lot lately in regards to romantic relationships. I just learned that it costs about 28% more to live alone than it does with a partner. So it does make me wonder how many people are staying in relationships because it's more affordable. Or, you know, to your point, what issues would emerge if you had more money available to you? I see those invisible lines in friendships a lot too, or the events you plan or the places you go out to eat or the trips you take are often determined by what each person can spend. So money really reveals those questions like, do we have the foundation and the communication skills to openly share about what we can and can't afford? Money amplifies and accentuates a lot of times the person you are to your point. So if you're naturally 
you know, kind of a stingy person now, it's very likely that you will still be stingy even with more money. If you're a generous person now, usually you'll become more generous just in more impactful ways with more money. Yeah, emotionally, psychologically, it's very layered. We live in a society where we tend to lead with questions like, what do you do? And then we make these instantaneous judgments based on what we think people earn. And we often do this unconsciously, but it's one of the ways that we make sense of our world and our place in it is by categorizing everything and everyone. But then what that results in is we buy into these beliefs that our worth or our value is tied to the amount of money we earn, which of course isn't true. We're inherently valuable just as humans. It's not based on debt we have or what we have saved. But then since we live in this society that we do, we have to learn to kind of play these games that help us navigate the systems we live in and create the life that we want. As far as emotional functions, there have been a lot of studies that measure an individual's emotional well-being and life satisfaction. Purdue University specifically found that happiness peaks around 100,000 a year. Really? Yeah, that's the most recent number. And it doesn't mean that you don't have life satisfaction if you're earning less than that. It's just what they found to be the ultimate state of bliss before happiness begins to plateau. I knew a a hedge fund guy. He once told me, he said, um, once you have food on the table and a roof over your head, it's all diminishing returns. I would say that yes to a point because that gets you out of survival mode. But then having that extra can be the difference between buying really healthy food versus not or being able to afford those therapy sessions versus not. Do you ever have conversations with your clients around their happiness and the fact that money is not the answer, even though you're a money manager? So that's kind of, yeah, where I was going is we've collectively absorbed these phrases like love of money is the root of all evil or money can't buy happiness. But then there's research that shows like higher degrees of happiness do come sometimes with higher earnings. And I think it's just because money helps to fund the things that make you a thriving healthy person, you know, like investing in your health with good food and therapy sessions and, you know, those things that do support your emotional and psychological well-being, you know, or investing in hobbies that nurse you creatively. All my friends live around the world, so I have this little travel budget that I set aside so I can invest in those emotional relationships. So I do think they're attached. It also, psychologically, it'll provide degrees of security and safety and help lower anxiety, knowing that you could recover from an emergency. So ideally, I think it helps you build the life that you want to create, which then in turn impacts your emotional and psychological well-being. Can you relay any like stories of a difficult moment where you were you kind of felt like it was more about the emotions of the client than, hey, let's do it this way or let's invest in this or let's invest in that. The numbers just always feel like the door into the emotions and what's lingering like right underneath the surface of totals in a bank account. So I work with quite a few couples. So that's where it can start to feel like couples therapy sometimes. And so I've had couples where they had not talked about money at all together until they were in the room with me. So one of the tougher moments was when one person in the couple was in charge of managing a certain account. And it wasn't until the three of us were in the room together that his partner saw the total in the account and saw that it was much lower than she had realized. And so there was a lot of shock in that moment, a lot of anger, embarrassment, shame. So I just feel like my role in those moments is to be this container 
and facilitator for those emotions to talk through. And then it is this balance because you want to focus on the emotions, but then I found a lot of people find relief in both and being, you know, having the place to talk, but then also having the next steps, like a tangible, actionable thing. That moment always stands out to me just because of, again, those invisible lines. Like those are relationship communication skills. And the topic just happens to be money. And so one of the things that they ended up doing was a monthly money date. I saw them, their relationship change before my eyes just from focusing on money and making intentional time for it. What changes did you see? I saw um, a lot more lightness. So the first session was very heavy. The guy in the relationship wasn't really on board. You could tell that he was there for his wife. So I saw his investment in the process change where he started to lean into it and actually ask questions and get involved. And then, yeah, I was just seeing those tiny changes start to occur, like debt starting to go down a little or credit scores starting to rise a little or savings accounts starting to grow. And then that builds momentum. Like money is way more intimate. It's Forgive this analogy, but it's almost like a couple that doesn't have sex or that stopped having sex. Yeah. And they're not as intimate. And it's like they schedule time, okay, date night and da, 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 and then what gets you in the mood and all these intimacy things that a lot of couples grapple with. And with this situation, it's like, well, we're making a money date sort of. And it's intimate because it's really the the money is like the real bare bones and guts of the relationship in a lot of ways. I guess a lot of times in relationships, what happens is, is that there's a lack of vulnerability and people get kind of varnished over, if that makes sense. And they are not yeah. as intimate because they're kind of hardened and towards each other and towards life. And they have to learn to be vulnerable with one another. And so what I'm hearing you say is that in the room, it's like suddenly the, the partner or wife or whatever saw the vulnerability, her husband's vulnerability. He had to be vulnerable before her. And that must have been quite a shock. And uh, you know, my old therapist said, if it doesn't hurt, it isn't true. Mm. A lot of times couples, they don't want to look at the truth. They don't want to look at who they've really married or who this person really is underneath and what's really happening and what kind of trauma they may have experienced before the relationship and on and on and on and on. So I just think that's kind of a really cool story. No, I totally agree. And we have more capacity than we realize to hold difficult truths. Yeah. Um, Can I ask, do you see a difference in the way men relate to money and women relate to money? I know that's kind of a politically risky question, (laughs) but I'm curious (laughs) nonetheless. I had preconceived ideas about what that would look like going into this business, honestly. And I found more or less the same emotional, psychological hangups across the board. Like how demonstrative someone is, is kind of the big difference. So, you know, I've worked with several male clients and uh, none of them have cried. Most of my female clients have. But then as you ask questions, you realize that the same types of beliefs are ingrained. The same emotions are present. A, that's really good to hear. We're always talking about the differences between the men and women and the masculine and the feminine. It's nice to hear that there's this common ground that, hey, (laughs) we're all looking at this in one way. So I would love to hear about those beliefs. The most common ones I see are money will always be scarce for me. You need money to make money, more money, more problems. I'm not good with money. You know, you have to work hard for money. I can either make money or follow my passion. Money always needs to be held on to. Again, a lot of them are to protect us and keep us safe so you don't spend all your money. 
But then specifically ones around control or desire for control are really interesting to me because control can be such an illusion. But then if you fall into this headspace of thinking, what's the point? Like why bother trying to get a raise or a new job or cut back? It still doesn't help anything. So it's kind of finding that balance always of we cannot control the global economy at large or corporate greed or loan forgiveness. So then let's focus on the tinier things that are within our control. I'd love to hear more ways that you kind of write the ship. How do you reframe things for people? I'd love to hear about that because I, th- I know that people listening want to hear. Always starting with where it comes from. And I think it's kind of connected to cognitive behavioral therapy where you take the thought and examine it and then replace it you know, with a, a different thought and just try it on. How does it feel? So um, you have to work hard for money is a big one. And, you know, it, it often, when I've unpacked it with clients, you know, where does that come from? A lot of times it comes from the money mindsets that were modeled to you from your parents. So, you know, you saw your parents who are always stressed out about money or killing themselves at their job. And the assumption was it's always going to be difficult to get food on the table. And a lot of that goes all the way back to specifically the U.S.'s puritanical roots of the value that we attach to working very hard. And then, you know, we replace that with the opposite thoughts or alternate thoughts. So a lot of times in the form of questions, what would it feel like if it wasn't hard to work for money? What would it feel like if it came easily to you? Can you even imagine a life in which that were the case or does it feel impossible to you and why? So it's just a lot of questioning, a lot of breaking down the source. A lot of times you just say something out loud and that in itself, as you know, in your line of work is powerful and you realize how funny it is when you actually say it out loud. So here's the thing. My relationship to money is kind of weird. So in my family, my father, he expressed love by giving his kids money. So money was never an issue. It was sort of openly talked about. This is how much, this is what we're going to do. The one big taboo is that you don't talk to other people about money. You don't talk to anyone outside the family about how much money uh, your dad makes or how much we have. What, what is that thing? I've got a friend of mine and we like we sit down and we'll talk about how much money we're making and we kind of feel like we're doing something bad. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> What's up with that? You know, it's like, you can sit down and talk to somebody about like your sex life, or you can sit down and talk to them about money. And I think the money thing would be more difficult. <laughs> oh man. It is still one of those lingering taboos. And it's one of my personal goals is to keep talking about it until that the taboo starts to lessen. I think it was considered rude in past generations. It's just not something you bring up. I don't know the reason that we've continued to hang on to that and not, you know, other things that we talk about openly like sex, which are I don't think our parents or grandparents openly talked about either. So for some reason, there's still this like safeguarding around money. Again, it's that categorizing of your place in society of kind of fear around maybe you don't want to know where you fall in like the chain of <laughs> comparison compared to your friends. Maybe you don't want them to feel bad about what you earn 
Yeah. And I think some of it could be we live in a capitalistic society where wages aren't openly discussed and that benefits businesses a lot of times. So it could be some of that seeping in to our conscious collectively too. I do see that slowly starting to change as laws get passed about needing to have the salary range on job postings, but it definitely benefits employers for employees not to talk about their salaries. Yeah. I heard about a company once where the owner actually put everybody's salary on the website. I love that. <laughs> so there's also, um, I have a, I, for, for reasons I don't understand, I have a bunch of Irish patients. Mm. I don't know how it happened, but it did. And so I'm learning a lot about Irish culture. And one thing that I've learned is that in Ireland, if you go into a bar and you buy somebody a drink, it's considered rude because it's a form of showing off. Mm. Yeah. You don't ever show off your money. You don't ever sh- do, don't do anything to show that you got more than anybody else has because it's, a, you're being condescending. I wonder if that, you know, all comes out of a scarcity mindset. So if there's like a, I'm not saying all the Irish report, I'm just saying that I think that the puritanical roots of this country are very scarcity mindset oriented. You know, we came here and, you know, the, the stories of like Plymouth Rock and, you know, the, all the people that died and Jamestown, a bunch of them died. And, you know, there's always all these stories about like Thanksgiving, for instance, we have a whole goddamn holiday dedicated to basically scarcity. Because I mean, Thanksgiving, even though it's about oh, we're giving thanks and we have all this bounty, it's really a, a holiday about scarcity because it's like, we're so glad we have food and we're not going to starve, <laughs> you know? And so, and I think in a scarcity mindset, uh, a collective scarcity mindset gives birth to these taboos for sure, because you don't, you don't want to be the one who makes more than everybody else, because everyone will feel unequal to you and so on and so forth. And they're all bitter and resentful about not having their, their lot in life. Yeah. I have an East Coast friend. I live in New York right now and they bring me a coffee. I immediately Venmo them for the coffee. It's like a non-issue. It's not even a conversation. Yeah. And they do the same with me. So then I moved to Portland and they did the same thing. People got so offended. What are you doing? And in my mind, it's like, I would never want to assume that this is free or to you to think that I'm assuming it's free. So it's like the kinder thing for me to at least offer, but it's completely different. That is so fascinating because like I said, in my family, you know, money is an expression of love. And I I love buying dinner for my friends because it's my way of saying I love you. But what I realized is that it can kind of throw things out of whack because then they can feel like they owe me because Mm. I paid for and then I'm making some sort of broad statement that maybe you don't have money or you can't afford this. There's so many weird issues that can graph. The invisible man thing comes up again. It's like, there's so much stuff that can come up. And I think the East Coast way is probably healthier, honestly, because it's just like, it's a non-psychological issue. It's like, everybody's even, everybody's fair, everything's clean and it's done. But you know, it doesn't surprise me in a, in a place like Portland, where frankly, there isn't as much money and mm. there's probably more scarcity. And also it's a much more political, politically charged place. I would imagine that money is a very charged issue. Um, I'm making a lot Mm. of assumptions about Portland because I can't stand the place, but no offense. I know you (laughs) like it up there. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And and when someone's treating me to a meal, I completely get that because I love, love treating my friends, even like taking them on a trip. Like, I just want you to travel with me. I don't care. Just come with me and I'll buy our ticket. But the same with the meal, I'd rather not know that someone's treating me until the end because my mom's German. So in a German household, the worst thing you can do is be a burden. And so I'll change what I order a lot of times if I know that someone's treating me because I don't want to order too much. My therapist grew up in the Great Depression and he saw people like jumping out of windows and the the whole thing. And his scarcity mindset was second to none. He was always yelling me about saving money and wasting money and... Boy, 
he infected me pretty good. Mm-hmm. He did tell me a story once about this uh, hospice where all the old folks were getting food poisoning. What was happening was that they had all grown up during the Great Depression, like himself. I think a little, they were even older than him, and they were all saving all the food and then eating it later, and it was going bad, and they were making themselves sick. <laughs> So yeah. it's really interesting to see a scarcity mindset, what it can do to a, a, wow. a population. Yeah. Was this the therapist who said made the gutter comment? Yeah. Oh, the gutter comment. Yeah. So he, he would give me financial advice, which was unethical, but whatever. He's dead. They can't get him. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said to me, you know, I, I, what's the point of all this therapy if you're sleeping in the gutter? Mm-hmm. And I wish that ethically I were allowed to give financial advice, but I'm not. I mean, I give people books to read and things like that. Have you heard of The Richest Men in Babylon, that book? Yeah, yeah, I read that a long time ago. Yeah, I, that's a sort of, for those of you listening, that's kind of like uh, saving money 101. Um, and I, I just assign that to patients, like you read this. And <laughs> um. <laughs> it is fantastic read, for sure. I have found that even saving can play into that scarcity mindset, though, and frugality, because there's like a cap to it. Eventually, you can only cut back so much or save so much. And then the opposite being abundance, like there's no cap to what you can earn. I want to speak to that. So I'm going to say more than I should because it's my job. Um, So I went from an intern who was making, uh, I'm going to do a taboo thing because I'm talking about my own money, making $16 an hour. I mean, I was working at a rehab and I remember I was a Bayside Miranda's up in um, San Rafael. I learned every job in the place. I became the weekend manager. I did all these amazing things and I was got all these positive reviews. And I'm like, great, you're doing such a great job. We're going to give you a $2 raise. I'm like, oh my God. And um, I just, during that time, I was always scraping by. And I remember my girlfriend and I, we had to pick up free food from like the Salvation Army at one point. Then my dad died and it's like, oh my God, now there's no fallback. And just budgeting down to the penny. And, and once I got licensed and started working and then my income I mean, went up by a factor of, I don't even know the math, but I remember, I remember seeing my first patient for $80 an hour and I couldn't believe that someone handed me four $20 bills just to talk to me for 55 minutes. Mm. Um, you know, now my rates are much higher and notice I didn't say how much because it's taboo to say that. <laughs> um, but this is a totally the privileged sort of arrogant thing to say, but I kind of miss the crush. <laughs> <laughs> of living in the in the in the world of scarcity. Like I kind of miss the game. Like I remember I would go to like I would get my cheese from Trader Joe's and I would get my produce from this one market that had really cheap produce. And I would spend the day, it was like I had a third job of like foraging for cheap shit. Mm. And I kind of miss it. I still do it somewhat, but I don't really need to as much. And even going out to eat with my friends, like paying for dinner doesn't mean as much as it used to to me. Or to us, because we, you know, I'm in a higher income bracket, and a lot of my friends are in a higher income bracket, and so when you pay for someone's lunch, it's not as big a deal because we can afford it. So that's my incredibly privileged position on on <laughs> on having abundance. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I think that makes sense. I think um, it reminds me of people who procrastinate over and over so that they can get things done by a deadline. Like part of you likes the rush and the adrenaline of it and the satisfaction of if you can actually pull it off. So that's kind of what it reminds me of. There's also something primal in there, I think. You said foraging and hunting and gathering for your food and like a huge element of problem solving. So it doesn't sound like you're ever bored. Yeah, maybe it's almost like a boredom thing. That's exactly what it was. It was problem solving. You got more of a charge out of it. 
I guess. Mm-hmm. It was like you become sort of addicted to it. I think there's also an element of being addicted to suffering. I was talking mm. to my own therapist, my current therapist about this. And I said, there's something about suffering that helps me feel contained. Wow. That I have structure. Like if I get up in the morning and I, I need to find out a way to pay for the day, my day is planned out for me buy money. I'm contained. I'm kept in. Working in addiction, you meet a lot of people with a lot of money who have nothing but money. Every time there's a problem in their lives, they throw money at it and the problem just dissolves. Mm -hmm. Just poof, gone. But the problem is, is they have no structure. They have no limits. And so whatever neurosis they have, let's say they keep crashing cars, right? They'd say they keep drinking and crashing cars and getting DUIs and they keep throwing money and lawyers at the problem. What happens is it's like cancer or gasoline on a flame. It just, the problem gets bigger because money just made it go away. Yeah. As almost a distraction to the the root problem. I do wonder, I have some theories about the issues we're facing today if they're replacing like the void that has been created by so much convenience. It's never been a more convenient time to live and uh, you know, enough time to scroll for hours a day on these phones or TVs. And what kind of anxiety is that adding in where, you know, our anxiety used to come from hunting and gathering and running away from animals and how it's being replaced is very interesting to me. That's a profound, I did not thought of that. Yeah. We don't have anything to push against anymore. I like the idea of creating inciting incidents where you're adding that pressure back in. It can be setting a deadline or you know, increasing your generosity. It sounds like you get a lot of satisfaction out of that. So maybe doing it on a grander scale than a dinner. Do you ever find yourself still like playing games like saving money in your head? Like one thing I do is I walk a lot in the city and it started a few years ago when I was, I had a money scare and I started, I stopped taking Uber and I stopped taking the bus (laughs) and I just started Mm -hmm. walking. And what I was doing is I would walk to a destination and I would calculate how much money I had saved either from the bus or from the Uber. And I would sort of have a running tally in my head about how much money I had sort of made myself. These little games that I used to play, you know, a lot more when I was much younger. Do you find yourself doing that still? Like all the time. Yes. And I just find it enjoyable actually. And it did start from a place of necessity and survival for sure. But I still think how much I'm saving or I add up at the end of the day, how much I've spent in the day just in my head or like as I go about my day, I'll add it up. And then I always do the trade-off. Like for me, money and time are inseparable. So I always calculate how many hours or minutes did I need to work to pay for that Uber or that bus ride. And I love the idea of trade-offs. I actually still don't own a car today because it's not worth it to me. I'd much rather spend lavishly on eating out so I don't have to cook and I still will walk or take the bus because it's not a painful trade-off to me. Yeah, I cook a lot for myself. I don't tally it up, but I enjoy cooking, so it's a lucky thing. Does it ever amaze you the mistakes that people make financially like when they're complaining about money but then they talk about how often they go out to eat? (laughs) Does it ever frustrate you? Like, Do you ever roll your eyes when you're (laughs) involuntarily? I... I kind of get it. I think it's a little bit of decision fatigue. Like we're making the decision fuel runs out. It's a limited amount every day that we get. So I feel like, especially by the end of the day, if you're already in a job you hate and then you get to the end of the day, you just have no willpower left. And the last thing you want to do is deprive yourself when life already feels so heavy and So yeah, that's why I'm really big on setting up money systems that don't rely on willpower so you can avoid that exact thing. So I've had like completely serious conversations with clients and with friends talking about retirement. Their plan is to not live long enough to have to figure it out. What? So I am, yeah. In in complete seriousness. Oh no. So I'm feeling this, having done this work for like close to six years now, a new kind of apathy 
and nihilism now than I've felt in the beginning from clients and, and friends. I think part of it's having like the entire world in our the palm of our hand on our phones. I don't think that's natural for our brains to be able to take all that in. So I think things have always been chaotic and intense and every generation thinks their generation is the worst, but it just feels like it's amplified now by it all being available to us. I'm just seeing a, a ton of like, what is even the point of cutting back, trying to get a better job if it's not going to lead to what I want anyways. Even though we have things in the palm of our hand, is do you feel like it's getting more difficult to make money? Like it's more difficult to get ahead? Or do people feel like overwhelmed with all the competition because they could see other, you go on the Facebook and you see everyone's going on these loud vacations and like, fuck it, I'm, a, I'm just a piece of shit. What, what, what's going on that that's happening? That doesn't help. Yeah, I hate LinkedIn. The, like whose job title is longer? I think- that soup, man. I think that's part of it, the comparison. It's both and because the barrier to entry has also never been lower. Like you truly can you start a business online quite easily, the easier than it's ever been. And I do think the the wage transparency is helping. It just really is going back to the beginning of this conversation. Money is just an exchange of value. So I think it's finding a combination of what you're good at and what you enjoy and how that can be valuable to the world. And that's where it feels like there's this disconnect in people accessing what that is. Because once you're really clear on that, it's usually not that hard to make money. What's a healthy frame for making money? Because I think that's what people would love to know that. I would like to know it. I think it, it takes time and it takes continued action and it takes experimentation. Like I only now at 32, and I would say I came to this just in the last year or two, am clear on what my skill set is and what my strengths are and how to market those either to clients or to other companies. And that only came by for the entire you know decade of my 20s of experimenting over and over again and finding the difference between what I was good at versus what I enjoyed and if they could intersect. I did some like ghostwriting for a while. I really enjoy writing and it would just kill me that I was writing and not getting credit for it. I just absolutely hated it. And so it was draining me that I was like getting better in this skill that I didn't even want to get good at. And so I think that a lot of people can get trapped in something that they're good at and they've received affirmation and validation for in their career. And then their entire life trajectory can follow this thing that they're maybe good at, but don't enjoy. So I think there has both elements have to be in place. And then once you can articulate that, really the only choices are go work for a company as an employee or become self-employed and start your own business. And so I've done both. I've been on both sides and I see pros and cons to both. So sometimes I miss that I used to be a teacher. So I love that I could go teach, you know, as long as I showed up every day with teaching material, it was such a low stress job. You know, I could leave work at work and that's the biggest perk of being an employee. And now running my own business, it's completely on me, which is amazing because of the freedom, but also overwhelming a lot of times. So damn terrifying. Um, (laughs) The biggest turning point for me in my relationship with how much money and how I was doing and handling my own resources, when I asked myself two questions, which is, what do I have? What do I actually have? And what am I going to do with what I have? Yeah. And like, I have this apartment that I pay, you know, this amount of rent on. I have this much in savings. I make X number of dollars. I've got this support system around me. That's another thing people need to learn how to do is access their support systems to, you know, boost their careers. 
I have this degree, like be really, I, w- I just got really realistic with myself about what literally existed in my life. And then what could I literally do with that? Because a lot of times I lived with my, in my twenties, especially I lived with my head in the clouds about, oh, I've got all these dreams and aspirations and I'll just sort of get there one day, <laughs> you know, somehow. Mm-hmm. And I remember once I heard um, Dolly Parton, she was talking about how to make it in the world. She said something about how like if, if you're going to become if you're going to fly if you're going to become like an angel and fly and just soar in the world there's a lot of hammering and you got to find the right wood and you know and she broke down kind of the unsexy process of becoming this incredibly sexy thing and i just don't think people a lot of times know how to be realistic do you find that yeah it completely and like do you actually want what you say you want is a big one like separating what you truly want versus what you think you should want based on the messages you're receiving from society. So I've met a ton of people who now, having done this financial work, know that they are not ambitious and they've come to terms with that and accepted that about themselves. And I think that's amazing. And so if you fall into that camp, great. But to your point, yeah, about the support system, there's no way I could have built a business without gathering this huge support system around me. And I love that idea of building, like I think everyone should be able to build a a personal development team in their life of someone to address the mental, someone the emotional, spiritual, physical, and financial. Um, I'm going to address current events for a minute. So it looks like we're in a recession. Uh, That's all the news. There's inflation happening and the Dow, I think, lost 1,200 points yesterday. And I understand the Dow is not necessarily connected to the economy, but there's a lot of fear. I see a lot of cutbacks happening. I saw Patreon cut back 20% of their workforce. There's just cuts happening everywhere. Budgets are being tightened. People seem frightened. Yeah, that goes back more. It's attached to that apathy and that nihilism of what's the point. And I think the fear is underneath those emotions. And again, all the stock market fluctuations are more in our face than they've ever been before because of our phones. So there's nothing new under the sun. The stock market has always fluctuated and it's always gone back up. And there have been recessions in the past. So I think, again, it's just looking at what can you control and what do you have no control over. I still adamantly believe that it's riskier not to invest than it is to invest because of inflation. You know, looking at our 9% inflation this past year, the best you can get in a, a really good savings account is 2%. So if you're only saving money and you should have some cash on hand, you're still falling behind a lot of times because of inflation. So you can start really small, you know, start what you're comfortable with, but some of the best days and investments, you know, it's like these few big days that have happened over a span of many years. So if you're not in the market and invested in the market on those big days, then you lose out in a huge way. And I get like easier said than done. It's a lot harder to put money into this fluctuating stock or Roth IRA or whatever it is when you're seeing it go up and down. Objectively, you can buy low, like everything is on sale right now, which is great. But you know, when money is tight, again, I always just say start small. Or if you don't have your savings, just start there. Start with cash. The market continues to go back up over time for all of history. Yeah, that is true. The market has gone up since... um since the very beginning, which I guess it's because we're becoming more productive. We're producing more as, as a planet and there's just more wealth to go around. Though I wonder if it'll come up. I mean, this is, our system is so so out of whack. Things do feel precarious. I think it, it's always like life exists in seasons and ebbs and flows. So to me, you know, we've had a really strong market for the past decade. So it's natural to me that we would now be entering this season. But I know emotionally, 
that practical answer doesn't always help. It's like Game of Thrones. Did you watch? <laughs> yeah. You know, you know where I'm going with that. Yeah. Winter is coming. <laughs> Buckle down. Yeah. I'm curious, what kind of things do you recommend people invest in? I like to invest in companies personally. I, I have someone like you in my life. I have a, I have a guy who invests my money for me and I just cut him checks and I don't have to worry about it. So one recommendation that I've heard from other money managers and from, and I make myself to patients is like, instead of just going out there and managing your own stock portfolio, just have a professional do it. That professional knows more than you do and you don't have to hold the anxiety about it. So do you agree with that, by the way? I think that's better than not investing for sure. Uh, It's always going to be a little bit more expensive to have an actual human being managing your investments than it is to invest with a robotic advisor, just with an algorithm that manages your portfolio for you. But either option, you'll just have a little bit of a higher management fee with a real live person. But the benefit of that is you get you know, a human to talk to who can talk you out of pulling all your money out when things look dire. So it's still way better than not investing at all. So, um, but I am curious, like what kind of investments do you recommend? Do you do, do you do stocks? Do you do bonds? Do you do a mix? Do you do index funds or? I love index funds. I remember when I was first learning about investing and I didn't know anything about it till around 24. I was not taught it in my home or school. So I remember how overwhelming it felt to hear all these terms and not knowing where to start. So if you're brand new and you want to start, I really recommend either a wealthfront.com or betterment.com and you can sign up for an account and they will guide you through, just walk you through all the steps to get started and when to deposit. And you can just open a Roth IRA account. And that's the basket that holds all your investments in. So then you need to choose what goes in that basket. But yeah, I love index funds. So you can either do mutual funds or ETFs are the types of index funds I recommend. And then I have a balance right now. It's pretty aggressive, but it's something I feel okay with around 85 in stocks and 15 in bonds because I'm really big on keeping cash on hand too. So I I, I like a more aggressive style. Some people prefer 50-50. It also depends a lot on your age and what age you want to retire by. What you mean by that is that in stocks are easier to liquidate. Like a bond is not something you liquidate. Um, You don't just cash that in. Yeah. And it's just higher risk, higher reward. So stocks perform a lot better over the long term. They're going to be more volatile in, in the short term, like right now, but they pay bigger dividends down the road. Um, I want to ask you about gold because <laughs> Seymour, God bless him, was always telling me to buy gold. So for those of you listening at home, gold retains its value and has historically over the millennia. And I had one hedge fund guy tell me that ancient Egypt, like a, a house was something like, I'm going to make, I think I forget what he said, the exact number was something like 240 ounces of gold. And it's still basically that price, like a half a million dollars. Mm-hmm. There's a spiritual quality to gold. People are sort of drawn to it. It has luster. It's fungible, which means it can you can change it. You can reform it into anything. And it has a sort of a spiritual sunlight quality that just, you know, people want more than water and life itself. There's something about gold. But there's also these this whole swath of people in the market, they call them gold bugs, who are just constantly talking about how the world's going to end. And <laughs> you better buy gold because if you don't buy gold, you know, you're going to be fucked. And they're not wrong. I mean, gold is what, $2,000 an ounce now? I haven't checked it recently, but I wouldn't be surprised. It's getting there. And so in a way, they're not wrong. It's like if you had invested, you know, a ton of money, but then again, if you had invested in Apple, you'd be, you know, the same amount of money, you'd be, you know, wealthy um, by now. So I don't know. What what are your thoughts on gold? 
I'm not big on buying individual stocks ever. Recommend always buying groups of stocks and then it's they self-cleanse. So, you know, when one drops out, the the fund will insert the next highest performing. So I'm kind of against individual stocks, like only investing in Apple, but leaving like if you're interested in it and in gold, leaving a portion of your portfolio for that. So the diversified portfolio is the goal. So if gold is a part of that, great. I wouldn't personally go all in on gold. Um, What I know about gold is not much, but I know it can be very hard to offload um, and difficult and cumbersome. So there are also stocks that represent the value of gold. That is another option as well because it's easier to buy and sell if needed. Yeah, I wouldn't go all in, but it's fine to have it be a part of your portfolio. What are your thoughts on the insanity of the of the um, derivatives markets? For those of you who don't know, like, and you can correct me if I don't do this right. For instance, a derivative is you can buy a stock that goes up if the price of gold drops, <laughs> and then you could probably buy a stock that goes up when the stock that goes up when gold drops goes down. And you know, it's like there's all this really weird second like derivatives to me are kind of the sickness of the market that everybody's second guessing everybody else's. Let's say there's a hurricane in, I don't know, Texas, and that gonna affect, I don't know, beef, price of beef. And so a bunch of people like the price of beef is gonna go way up. And so we're gonna what's gonna happen is that all these people are gonna something's gonna happen. So we're gonna short beef. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go in and try to make money on the fact that it'll actually go down. But wait a minute, that's gonna go down, so we'll buy it because it's gonna actually go up. And it's so weird, and I feel like nobody's actually buying value anymore. They're just guessing what everybody else is doing. It's so nuts. Yeah. Have you seen the Big Short or Reddit? It's so amazing. I think that's been the case for a while. Like a lot of smoke and mirrors. That's like a roller coaster. I don't want to be on. I think you know if that's your full time job to make those predictions and guesses. Great, go for it. But for the individual investor, keep it super simple. Like the more boring, the better. Yeah. Okay. That's good advice. Well, I think we're good. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? Did you want to talk about how people can reach you? And yeah, I guess I'll wrap up by, we've talked about like control, you know, the, the kind of despair and fear that's in the air quite a bit in this episode. So a model that I love to reference a lot, and you might be familiar with it is Stephen Covey's circle of concern. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He talks about how we all have this circle of concern and inside of that lives all of the things that we could possibly worry about, like the derivatives market, the the price of gold, and all of these things we're talking about that are out of our control. But then within that circle of concern is the circle of influence. And what lives in that is all of the things that we can control, which is what you spend your money on, what jobs you apply to how you spend your days. And then the amazing part is that the more you focus on that smaller circle of influence, the more it grows. So once you've mastered the basics, the more you can take on. And then research has shown that, you know, the more you focus on what's in your control, the happier you are, the healthier you are, and the more financially successful you are, and it can make adversity less painful. So that's why I'm, I'm just really big on you know, when all of this feels overwhelming and you don't know where to start with your finances, focus on that one thing that you can control, even if it's just gathering up all your login details for all your accounts and log in and see where you're at. Sometimes that can be like the biggest barrier to getting started. So that's what I'll end on. Um, if anyone wants to reach out to me, it's Claire at creativemoneycoaching.com. And then my podcast is thebetterquestions.com. Okay. And I guess I'll be a guest on that in a minute. 
Definitely, yes. <laughs> well, listen, I really enjoyed speaking to you today. Uh, I look forward to conversations in the future. I loved it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you have any questions or would like to be a guest on my show or you would like to see me as a therapist, you can contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or check out my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.